The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. So, what's your risk exposure to increasing energy costs? Do you have a plan to lower that risk? Here's one way, a microgrid. A microgrid solution can optimize your distributed energy resources, helping unlock new revenue streams and avoid costly peak demand charges. Now you can reap the benefits of a microgrid with no upfront capital through a new microgrid as a service business model from Schneider Electric. Find out more about how it works at www.schneider-electric.us/microgrid. Or if it's easier, just follow the link in the show notes of the podcast page. This is The Interchange, conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston, and my co-host Shale Khan is out in Berkeley. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Well, you know, something, something feels different. And in the last couple of years, there's been a material shift in the way that we talk about renewable energy and distributed resources. We've tried to articulate it on this show, but I think it's worth revisiting more explicitly. Because for so long, believers of technologies like wind, solar, batteries, and microgrids have focused on government support. How should we help these technologies with very specific targeted subsidies? But all of a sudden, direct subsidies and mandates are diminishing in importance. And one example is um, one that you've given a couple of times, Shale. Uh, It's utility-scale solar, which was almost exclusively driven by state mandates and tax credits and is now in the U.S. being primarily driven by economics. And tax credits are also now on a path of being phased out over the next few years. So we have this proven class of resources that can perform the same function as traditional power plants, often at a lower economic and environmental cost. And these resources are hitting the grid at an accelerating pace. So now people are waking up to this reality, and the conversation is shifting toward markets. How do you put rules in place that fairly value the responsiveness, resiliency, and environmental performance of distributed resources like aggregated batteries, real-time energy efficiency, commercial microgrids, or just conventional wind and solar, both utility scale and uh, distributed? And how do you manage the surge of wind and solar so they don't crush wholesale markets by flooding them with cheap power at the wrong time? So that's the framework we're operating in today. And we're going to have a couple of interviews with folks who perhaps operate on different ends of the political spectrum, but who are coming together in agreement over the need to restructure markets to make them fairer and to accelerate this change that we're undergoing right now. So let me ask you, Shale, um, what do you think about my characterization? Like, do you, do you agree that there's this agreement I think it's true to an extent. I think that it's definitely true that there's been a transition among the folks who are promoting renewable energy, wherein wind and solar in particular have become economically competitive. And there's where they're not quite economically competitive today, there's a pretty clear runway toward it. So that was what enabled, for example, the compromise that allowed for the extension and ultimate phase out of the production tax credit and investment tax credit in late 2015. You know, the both the wind and solar industries were sort of happy to see a phase out as long as they had um, a little bit longer of a runway to get there. 
And I do also think that it's true that there's been a transition now as we get new types of resources on the grid, whether they be, like you said, batteries or demand response or microgrids or even new ways to use renewables that the markets, whether they be wholesale markets or retail markets, were just not designed with these resources in mind. And so there's a push to redesign the markets to allow for these resources to compete. And so that sort of naturally does align with the folks who've been sitting on the free market side for a bit longer and have been pushing things like deregulation and, you know, wholesale competition, retail competition, and so on. So I do think that there's an alignment there now that there wasn't in the past. I'm a little skeptical of the idea that this is a fundamental transformation and that we'll now see political alignment amongst both the the crowd that is primarily focused on combating climate change and the crowd that is primarily focused on free market principles and electricity for a really long time. But they happen to align right now, just given where the markets are. And I think that they're coming together in some ways in opposition to the current federal administration, which clearly does not share either of those principles, caring about climate change or espousing free market principles. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Why don't you think it will last? You're suggesting that this is a very temporary thing. I think it'll probably last longer. But is that because there are these fundamental differences between more progressive groups that still probably see tax credits and subsidies as important to you know, helping emerging technologies? Well, I think that it's it's either temporary or it's just sort of training its fire right now on a particular space. So it, I think it's relatively easy to have progressive clean energy groups align with free market think tanks on opposition to the DOE NOPER to opposition to the idea of guaranteeing cost recovery for coal plants as long as they have 90 days of fuel supply that you know they can easily align in opposition to that but a place where for example um progressive clean energy groups probably support but you don't see the free market think tanks getting on board with this would be things like California mandating 50% or even 100% renewable energy right that's a, that you know the free market groups are going to view that as as a mandate um the clean energy groups are going to say, you know, we do think that wind and solar can compete, but we need to push this transition faster than it would happen naturally. And we need to create a space for innovation for all the other technologies that are going to have to emerge as you get to higher penetrations of renewables. And we're going to do that by basically enforcing a, a really high mandate. So while I see the places where there is convergence, I just wouldn't overstate how broad it is. And I wouldn't, and, and you know, I think if you just imagine if we had um, a Democrat in office, imagine if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency and the types of things that her administration would likely be doing on energy issues. I'm not entirely sure you would see so, so much alignment in that case. You might in some things, like for example, you know, we talked to Norman Bay at this conference last week about um, the FERC storage NOPER, which is not the NOPER that we talk about all the time now, but it was a notice of proposed rulemaking that the that FERC made um, before Norman stepped down as chairman. And that one was basically trying to open up markets to make sure that they are designed with the capabilities and the special characteristics of energy storage in mind. My guess is you're going to find places like that where you can get alignment, but I don't think it's this 
big, broad repositioning of the political spectrum and energy so that, you know, we end up with kind of universal agreement between those groups. It's important to differentiate the political re- response to energy policy from the, um, you know, the way that grid geeks talk about this stuff. And we're going to feature a couple of different interviews in this podcast, one with Lene Shirley, who's the Senior Director of Technology Innovation at the Environmental Defense Fund, and one with Devin Hartman, who's uh, a senior fellow with the R Street Institute, a free market think tank. And they use a lot of the same language. You know, you get the sense that they really are on the same page with a lot of this stuff. And it's it's really when you get into the political sphere that people start using rhetoric that purposely divides. So I actually think that we're a lot more aligned on this stuff than you're giving you're giving credit for. I mean, one thing that I thought was interesting in both of those conversations where, where there clearly is alignment at the moment and that we could probably dig into deeper on a future episode is that they both are looking at Texas as the example of a well-formed electricity market that is is doing good work. And Texas is clearly the most liberalized electricity market in the sense that, you know, it is, there's, there's competition at every level that you basically can create competition within Texas. And both Lene and Devin um, speak very positively about the Texas model. So there may be some alignment in terms of what, you know, the ultimate vision of a market could look like. Well, then let's um, hear from Lene Shirley first. Again, she's the Senior Director of Technology Innovation and Market Adoption at the Environmental Defense Fund. We caught up with her in Austin, Texas, where she was speaking um, about tech commercialization and market reform at our Power and Renewables conference. So after her panel, we um, went to a back room, sat down and talked about um, EDF's take on market reforms and sort of how you integrate technologies into this new framework. And of course, you know, I asked her whether she agreed with this convergence or overlap or however you want to describe it. Absolutely. I think um, you can see in the Texas market how having a competitive environment has been able to uh, accelerate the deployment of wind technologies. Um, Markets uh, create environments where people can compete and I think market-based solutions are absolutely necessary to transform the electricity sector. Do you think that's been a transition, though? Is it, has it, yeah, it's always been true that markets are helpful, but I think Stephen's premise is that in trying to support and push forward this new suite of technologies, renewables and everything that comes along with it, that there was a focus for a long time on subsidies in order to get them economically competitive in the first place and that now we're transitioning from the focus on subsidy and incentives to a focus on sort of opening up and redesigning markets to enable them to compete head to head. Are we at that turning point? I think there is definitely a shift happening and I'm, I, I'm not sure if we're there yet uh, in that, um, you know, while all resources that feed the electric sector have incentives, subsidies, tax breaks, what, what, whatever you want to call it, um, that renewables are actually uh, providing different kinds of value streams that aren't recognized in the markets. And while markets are very important for recognizing uh, the, the physical values for electricity generation, I think um, we, you know, markets currently are missing the uh, environmental values 
that renewables can bring. Yeah, that's probably the biggest one, of course, figuring out a price on carbon and other pollutants. Um, but of course, we, we are looking at identifying black star capabilities, uh, flexibility capabilities. There are all these capabilities that battery storage or renewables with smart inverters can provide. And we're only now beginning to figure out how you value the, those resources. That's correct. We see in many of the wholesale markets and the stakeholder meetings efforts to try to create more granular products that can actually help integrate more renewables and distributed energy resources. However, we also see that the stakeholder process is very heavily favored towards incumbents, and it's still very difficult to create those kinds of changes that could be necessary to help release these technologies more fully into the market. How do you see that playing out? I've heard that a lot and, and seen it a little bit in terms of these stakeholder processes really being weighted toward the incumbent. And people talk about it a lot, especially in like regulatory conversations where utilities have so much they're overweighted in terms of their power that they have to influence their regulators. But in general, how do you see that uh, advantage of for the incumbents play out in these stakeholder processes? Well, I, I think the stakeholder processes could be balanced. I think one of the issues is that I think the new technologies are outnumbered. Um, they don't have the resources to have a dedicated person sitting in all of the different stakeholder meetings to affect the change. So many times, a lot of players are not at the table. And therefore, when you have a vote, you get outvoted. And that is what we're seeing in ERCOT with the fast frequency response service that probably will die this week. Um, because while there are people who are supporting it, there are more people who are not. And so I also think that Utilities have had long-term relationships with regulators, and in many cases, there's political connections. And I think, uh, again, when you start looking at and looking at donations to different campaigns from utilities, you can start to see a trend where these connections, you know, actually um, are, are making a difference in some of the decisions that are getting made. What I heard you hint at earlier is that. There are also all these historic subsidies that have favored incumbent technologies. We focus a lot on wind and solar tax credits, which are now being phased down. Um, but there are also other technology-specific tax benefits for coal and natural gas. Um, and nuclear. And, and nuclear. Uh, can you walk through some of those and, and why you believe we're missing the mark when we're not addressing those holistically when talking about tax benefits? Well, I think... You know, the argument has been that uh, because it's not an electricity generator directly receiving that benefit, that it is not affecting the electricity sector. And I, I think that's, that's, that's mistaken. Any input that goes into the production of electricity um, and that receives a, a, any form of tax break or special incentive should we should acknowledge the fact that that's actually happening. And I think my heartburn is when we focus on the ITC and PTC, but we fail to focus on the fact that both coal and natural gas have received enormous amounts of subsidies, whether it be through the the below market rates for land, below market rates for transportation, uh, the you know the ability to not claim a certain level of production for tax purposes. All of those affect the price of the actual fuel going into 
the generator. And so I think it's very important to recognize that that we have been subsidizing our electricity generation for decades, in some cases a century, and that it is uh, it's easy to do the math on ITC and PTC, and therefore I think they get picked on a lot. It's much harder to dig through the actual tax incentives that are received by these other entities. And so, again, I think um, you know the subsidies conversation is one that needs to uh, if you want to talk about those, let's let's talk about all of them. Travis Cavula, a, a Montana PSC commissioner and and thinker that I really like about these issues, and somebody who like truly believes in free markets, wrote this long piece a few months ago called "There Is No Free Market for Electricity." And one of the things that I've been trying to grapple with as I think about these transitions is we we simultaneously seem to want to open up the markets more, especially for these new technologies and make sure that they are appropriately rewarding all the attributes that, that renewables and distributed energy have. But at the same time, as he points out, you know, electricity is like the most twisted version of a free market you can possibly imagine. Should we be trying to just kind of nibble around the edges? Like I think we are doing to enable these resources to play in what is already a really messed up market, or should we be thinking holistic redesign of electricity markets? Well, it would be nice to think holistically about how do we redesign the markets. I'm not sure if he's specifically referring to all markets. I happen to be biased being based in Texas and seeing the benefit of having no capacity markets. That has allowed a lot of retirements that I think, you know, again, when you look at other markets, they have a glut issue, a a complete oversupply issue, and they have these capacity markets continuing to build upon that. I do think that there are some fundamental flaws. Um, I do think that, you know, we've done a pretty good job um, for most of the markets. And I think, you know, again, uh, if we could start over, it would be great. I don't know exactly how we would be able to do that. Do you think the Texas model is is a model that should be replicated? And for anybody who's not familiar, do you want to just explain what makes Texas different from most other electricity markets? Yes. So... Um, I do think the Texas model is unique and that it seems to be working well. Um, the, the Texas, the ERCOT market basically does not have capacity markets. Um, they have looked at what are those price signals that can be built into the energy markets so that you can inspire investors to come to the market. So for example, we have a nine, $9,000 megawatt hour price cap. So Prices could spike that high, and uh, no other no other organized market has that kind of market signal. Um, one of the things, while while Texas does have a healthy reserve margin, um, well, that's actually changing now that we have the uh, coal plant retirements. But um, you know, you look at other markets that have capacity constructs, and you know, you know, those consumers are paying a lot more in that market than they need to because there is an oversupply and they are paying for resources that never get utilized. Right. And just to be more clear about this, the capacity market is a payment to generators for a certain amount of power capacity that they could bring online during a peak period. And oftentimes those generation, the generation units don't get utilized, but they get the capacity payments. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting way that we've ended up 
developing these electricity markets wherein so in a, in a typical electricity market not true of texas you'll have an energy market that for which you are paid you know dollars per kilowatt hour at any given time that you're generating but it won't allow prices to spike like crazy and then utilities need to and grid operators need to guarantee that they're going to have sufficient capacity online years in the future so they run a capacity market which is saying you know right now for 2019 or 2020 2021 um, if you can guarantee me a certain amount of capacity then i will pay you for that regardless of whether i end up calling upon you to generate or not and so as a result it, it has complicated the market everywhere else a lot more than texas which is really simple it's just an energy only market prices fluctuate a lot more so you can have those really high price spikes um but in exchange for that, it provides enough of a price signal to generators that they know they can make money so they don't need capacity payments in order to come online. Do you think that that changes, though, as renewable penetration grows? I mean, the worry is that renewables have zero operating costs and are not dispatchable. So if you end up with renewables that are generating at what otherwise would have been the scarcity pricing hours in Texas, then you no longer have that those really high price spikes, which have been a big factor in what makes money for all the, the generators that are online. Do you think that the market, the energy only market in Texas just kind of naturally reaches equilibrium uh, with increasing penetration of renewables or does that pose a threat of some kind? I, I actually think it does. Um, I, I think it'll still work with increasing penetration of renewables. I think when you see prices and the prices continue to drop, you, you see traditional generators crying out for we need to fix price formation and you know again the reality is is that when you have a a resource that has zero fuel costs you'll eventually get a zero marginal cost and you have zero marginal units and i think you know again there's a real opportunity i think for um the markets to continue to succeed in this environment. Now, I think that there needs to be changes, and I think that there's lots of opportunities for ancillary service improvements, and that's a big conversation we're having in, in regions that have high penetration of renewables. Um, I also think that we're fixing issues about dispatchability, and that when you start listening to some of the panelists that have been at this conference, um, there are technologies out there that will enable them to become more dispatchable, and uh, I think, you you know, again, storage is obviously one that that gets talked about a lot, but but there are others that are are um, coming online. So I think when you start looking at solving some of those problems uh, that have originally, you know, grid operators have originally encountered when integrating renewables, um, the ability to forecast when those renewables are available and not has dramatically improved. And you know, again, I think. Um, we're, we're not far from seeing most systems be d dispatchable in some form or another. We're seeing a lot more traditional free market groups come out in support of these changes to, to rules to, to level the playing field for this broad range of distributed resources that can provide services that are brand new. When you look at some of these groups that may have been on the opposite end of the spectrum, is there agreement among an organization like EDF with uh, maybe traditional conservative groups? Well, yes, actually. You know, EDF has a tagline called Finding the Ways That Work. And one of our main focuses has been really working with businesses to understand the business need in order to create solutions that have environmental impact. 
And so we have taken market-based approaches in many sectors of our work, and that, that, that's no different than in the energy space. And recognizing, again, utilities need to make money. We need to have our power. Uh, there are opportunities to uh, create a competitive environment where all resources that can deliver the capability that's needed can compete. So EDF has had a long tradition of market-based solutions. And I think, you know, again, um, we find ourselves um, in, in most cases in agreement with a lot of the conservative organizations. You know, principally speaking, um, you know, we like to find uh, solutions, including PACE financing, where you're using private sector dollars to, you know, deploy more efficiency in renewables, um, there are a lot of opportunities that, that we environmentalists and conservative groups actually agree on. And I think competitive markets is certainly one of them. Um, to what extent can we make markets tech neutral? Shale talked about how distorted markets already are. Um, like how far can we take this tech neutrality theme? Well, I think we have to look back at how we originally got started. We, we built markets based on what we knew at the time. And so we have a legacy condition that we, we have to figure out how to overcome. And so while I do think that, you know, there are certainly challenges in doing that, I think, you know, the question becomes, what are the changing needs of society? And, you know, how do you incorporate those different needs into a market design and, you know, again, we, we see different elements happening in different markets, including how can you create a carbon adder into a wholesale electric market? And, you know, again, I think, you know, those are some interesting um, opportunities, uh, but, but we do have to unwind the legacy that we've created based on what we knew when we first started designing markets. Lene Shirley, thanks so much. Thank you. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you considering a microgrid to improve your facility's resiliency, efficiency, and sustainability? If so, it's important to engage a trusted partner like Schneider Electric to help you meet your energy goals and your budget. Schneider Electric will guide you through the most important questions. How would your business and employees be impacted if your facility lost power for a week or more? Are you maximizing your distributed energy resources to unlock new revenue streams and avoid costly peak demand charges? Do you need an easy way to report on your sustainability performance? Microgrids are a natural extension of Schneider Electric's 100-year legacy in the power distribution and energy management business. Learn more about how Schneider Electric is developing new technologies, financing models, and partnerships to maximize your microgrid investment. Go to www.schneider-electric.us slash microgrid. That's www.schneider-electric.us slash microgrid, or just follow the link in the show notes of your podcast player or on the website. Um, so when we came back from Austin, Texas, we were still thinking a lot about these subjects, and we connected with Devin Hartman, who has been doing some pretty excellent work at the R Street Institute. The R Street Institute is a somewhat new uh, free market think tank in the last five or six years or so. And they have increasingly looked at energy policy and put together some um, very thoughtful pieces on electricity choice, um, on wholesale market reform, on tax reform, 
uh, early, and they were an early proponent of uh, carbon tax. And so, you know, we sat down with Devin and, and wanted to get his take on um, what kind of reforms our street institute would like to see and what fair competition and free market competition in this very regulated market actually looks like. I wanted to hear Devin's take on our framing as well. And, you know, he largely agreed that there is this coming together from groups across the spectrum. And interestingly, we didn't talk about this, but uh, R Street Institute is working with some more moderate groups on the left, like EDF, um, to kind of put put together some proposals that uh, open up competition in electricity markets. I think there definitely is. I think it really... You can trace it back to two or three years ago. Um, you know, look what happened when uh, industry and folks on the left and right uh, agreed to you know approach tax credits differently for for renewables. Um, you saw some recognition early in 2015, I think, of that, and I think it's a it's a combination of a few technological and economic fundamental factors coming up. Um, no longer are we playing the the nascent industry. Um, cards so strongly and instead we're saying hey you know we we see a platform in the future um, for clean energy technologies to compete on their merits so let's have that conversation Um, and I think you're seeing folks both on the industry side as well as across the political spectrum um, recognize that competition is good in and of itself just for economic development um, as well as recognizing as driving the type of innovation and rapid platform turnover um, that will usher in a new age of lower cost, lower emissions power. Can I just ask you, you know, I, I do think it's true that, especially you mentioned the sort of tax credit. So what ended up happening is that in the the, um, the extenders bill in 2015, there was an agreed phase out to both the PTC and the ITC that everybody seemed pretty happy with. And so that was pretty bipartisan. But would you have supported the same thing happening five years earlier because i think that the reality was that the reason that the industry wind and solar industries were willing and happy to have a conversation about a phase out was that they had received sufficient support for long enough that the technology had matured and gotten cheaper and now there was a, a clear sort of roadmap to being able to compete without the tax credits but you know if you're sort of a, a pure free marketeer you might have been opposed to having those tax credits for as long as they did exist, where I think the renewables folks would say, no, they needed to be there as long as they have been, and now is the time to phase them out. Correct. Yeah, I, I, I think there was obviously a split between some opinions on the, the left and the right. Um, you know, a lot of folks on the left, uh, you know, have had a tendency to, um, you know, to want to use different forms of industrial policy to, to try and get some, some technologies, especially, you know, the infant industry argument, um, I think, played up strong on that side. Um, but also on the more conservative side, there's the, the perspective, I think, some, some acknowledgement that, again, there are some things like learning by doing and spillover benefits that exist. But the concern over government failure and setting a precedent of picking winners outweighs the correction of those market failures. And so I think that's where you kind of have the principled um, evidence-based disagreements uh, within that range of, of reasonableness. Um, but either way, that argument, um, the infant industry argument, started to wane. Um, and and now we've seen, um, not just at the utility scale, but especially at the distributed level, there's an increasing recognition that if you want to send uh, the right signals for dispersed market participants, 
to engage in this space. It's going to be harder to do that with, with a more of a monopoly regulated construct. Uh, you need to facilitate open access uh, to the to the transmission system and and price signals should be the uh, the ultimate uh, you know driving force of which units retire, which units come online, where they're located, et cetera. I, you know, I do. I think actually, you hit on one thing that is definitely an area of convergence, which is kind of the unease about the regulated monopoly structure that we've got and the regulatory compact for utilities. You you see that obviously in these fights over rooftop solar and all these different states, and um, you know you saw some agreement between the green tea party that popped up and, and the rooftop solar advocates. So I do think that's an area where you, you see some agreement that like something needs to change, but I still, I go back to, you know, on the, the infant industry bit, you know, my worry is that if we, if we say, look, the infant industry thing worked for wind and solar for a while, we don't have to think too hard about whether we agreed on it that whole time, but we agree now that wind and solar don't need the same kind of, you know, they don't need the tax credits at least, and they just need to be able to compete in an open field. I think that's great, but I worry that there's going to be a next suite of technologies that are necessary to continue the energy transition. So energy storage being an example, an obvious example of that, that I would argue are still more immature and do warrant some, the, the kind of infant industry support that wind and solar received. So I wonder if we're sort of making a devil's bargain here. Yeah, I think, I think we can see, uh, well, there's some lessons learned from applying it to prior technologies. I think even a lot of the, uh, the wind industry folks, for example, will acknowledge, you know, yes, we've been making <laughs> that argument was being made 20 years ago uh, for the PTC. This industry has long since grown up. And of course, then you have, um, you know, what economists would say, what started off as rent-seeking behavior um, through the lens of the infant industry argument became rent maintenance behavior <laughs> later on, right? The infant industry hasn't quite grown up yet. Um, and you saw some of those arguments trying to pervade, even though obviously they'd, they'd achieved economies of scale already. And so I think some of the lessons learned going forward will be, yes, that was an expensive way to get these technologies out there. Um, I think you'll still have folks that are always in the camp of saying, no matter what, we still need to uh, provide uh, even out-of-market uh, incentives, uh, as well as in-market incentives for the development of these technologies. And I think you see that with, you know, things like offshore wind, and um, you'll see it with energy storage for sure. But I think we are having a different layer of, of conversation where even the big industries, right, even wind and solar for some of their technology subsets that are more at the infant stage, they're acknowledging that there are problems uh, with with kind of just doing the mandate and subsidy approach um, and some of the costs that are incurred with that. And if you look at something like the Energy Storage Association, their, their number one objective is to make sure that their technologies are appropriately compensated. And that means that gets into questions of, of markets, of market design, of the regulatory construct. Uh, that's not really getting into the, the territory uh, per se of, of tax credits and, and other out-of-market supports. I think that's actually a really good example and one that represents this convergence because you have these advocacy organizations that may have historically just focused on blunt subsidy instruments that are now pushing very specific market tweaks to um, enable their technologies to compete. And of course, ESA would say, you know, we need promotion programs in different states and they're, and they're, they're still pushing various targeted subsidy programs, but th- their 
broad approach really is all about market access, as you described. Exactly. And that's, and that's a huge thing. And I think what better indicator right now than looking at the, the effect of large consumers. So look at like corporate procurement of renewable energy, for example, which has just skyrocketed the last three years. It went literally from just this marginal driver of anything four or five plus years ago to all of a sudden being a big player. So all of a sudden you see the, t- the big tech companies, Walmart and other retailers, um, and even a fair number of uh, industrials and manufacturers, uh, many of them are saying, hey, we just want access uh, to competitive markets. We just want to be able to choose our source of energy supply. Um, and in many cases, that is going with green energy. But in many cases, um, for example, heavy industry, many times it's like, yeah, I'm indifferent. I just want it cheap. and I just want a lot of flexible options. And so you're seeing a lot of push for retail choice. And so whether that's, uh, you know, third party, you know, power purchase agreements, you're seeing a big push for that in a lot of states. Um, and a lot of that is driven by a lot of the inherent um, inefficiencies uh, and, and choice constraining um, limitations of the, of the monopoly model. And so I think that's a big area. And we're seeing this very cool alignment of the folks that, the folks that just don't really care about environmental effects and the folks that are totally green-minded are both coming together and saying, you know what, markets are the way to go. If the private sector wants to put their money um, behind voluntary investments in clean energy, more power to them. And that's something that principled conservatives um, and folks on the left uh, can can totally get behind. So that comes back to, I guess, this sort of the the issues around the regulated monopoly that we have with utilities. Do you have a vision of what the utility of the future should be? Like what, you know, your destiny, if you dial back, it's, it's monopoly on retail sales, you dial back, you know, any other sort of non-free market oriented principles that you can, you still have, it's somebody has to run the lines and wires. And for all the reasons that we originally made utilities monopolies, it doesn't make sense to have multiple sets of wires crossing. So is, is your sort of ideal version of an electricity market like Texas fully liberalized, but you know, there's a central grid authority or does it look something different? You know, I think this is, there's, there's the perspective with today's technology and then there's the perspective I think that we need to keep in mind that we have a regulatory construct that ages well as technology progresses. And so what works today, what's best today with today's technology may not be what's best, say, in the late 2020s or 2030s. And given how slowly regulatory reforms occur, uh, right, the whole 2000s took uh, for, for a generation uh, 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 restructuring just to get those uh, competitive markets upstream going took the better part of a decade or more. And so we have to keep in mind that option value. So I would say with today's technology, um, the, that restructuring as conventionally done is, is very clearly beneficial. And that's the, the, the very obvious benefits of that um, have really started to come out this decade. And that's where I think you're starting to see a lot of the, the pure economic interests very interested in, in sort of a refreshed approach to competition. So certainly with wholesale restructuring makes a ton of sense. Um, the generation of power is certainly not a natural monopoly. Now, as you kind of alluded to with transmission and distribution, there are certain characteristics um, of, of natural monopoly there. But at the same time, we're finding ways to introduce a lot of competitive forces into the procurement and operation of those services. 
Um, that I would say is further behind right now, but we're seeing areas, for example, in transmission expansion planning at the RTOs or at the retail level with you know the, the experimentation of using the distribution utility more as a platform a provider and facilitator of competitive services. So you're seeing a lot of ways to introduce competitive forces there. Um, how that'll shake out is a little bit harder to see right now, but I think we're, we're really onto something. Um, as we define more the needs of the distribution and transmission system and then let the private sector uh, procure those resources. I think Texas has the best designed market, especially from a resource adequacy perspective. And you know, that's why in the last decade you've seen the Texas by many, you know, Texas has strongly outperformed um, other states across the country by many measures. And so I think you see that. I think an interesting question will be what the future of uh, capacity planning is overall, um, including but not limited to capacity markets. Uh, that might be a separate question. <laughs> yeah, there are some details in there we probably want to hash out. But, uh, you know, our street has, I think, one of the most difficult tasks when we start grappling with this as a free market group because the electricity industry is one of the most highly regulated calcified industries in the world. And so... Um, a free market in electricity is nearly uh, impossible to create right off the bat. So what you're saying is that you don't want to just like blow things up and create this ideal free market. You're talking about very specific incremental reforms that can get us closer to some kind of free market. Yeah, I think um, I think in some ways there's there's massive reforms that can be made. Certainly going from states that are um, you know still committed to the the monopoly model. Um, obviously just going to, to restructuring um, as conventionally done, where you give folks retail choice, but also introduce a f- a full competition upstream in the, in the wholesale market is obviously the way to go. And that's a huge lift to get there. And of course, we can learn a lot from the way it was done in the late 90s through 2000s and do it much better to facilitate that transition. But of course, there's a lot of areas, I think, going forward where we can facilitate more competition uh, keep in mind that, you know, our our approach, and I think any good economic approach, is to say, you know, market forces should be should be driving outcomes. But of course, there are conditions under with which markets function well. With electricity, there are some very pronounced market failures. You know, we mentioned things like resource adequacy or transmission security. These services have traditionally been viewed as this this pooled, you know, public good or common good, and Going forward, I think as these uh, markets age, we have to keep in mind that there's some opportunities to sort of privatize those commons, if you will. Uh, very similar to, in many ways, how we don't have an RTO for natural gas pipelines. Um, you see some aspects now where we can, we can move away from a common pooling approach to resource adequacy. Uh, for example, consumers have a lot of variance and their willingness to pay for, for electric reliability. And right now we just kind of socialize it and with the exception of some limited demand response programs and just say, you know what, you're all kind of lumped in here. A central authority will assume what you're willing to pay for reliability. And once we start getting into the era of next generation uh, smart grid technologies, we start getting in an area where we can you know, control the flow and you know, actively uh, uh, manage demand much better and facilitate platforms for consumers to express their willingness to pay 
for reliability and get automated processes in place. And I think that lends itself to the next generation of, of wholesale markets, which is you know, another 10 years plus out. And we can think about ways of, uh, of having less central planning um, done for reliability purposes and letting uh, you know, the pure private sector forces just dictate investments tailored to individual uh, consumers. I think that's a good example of a place where I I can get partway there and then I start to get really nervous because I've thought about <laughs> a lot the like, okay, maybe we can charge for levels of reliability thing myself. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are ways in which that's happening now. We've talked a lot about you know the implementation of microgrids, for example, or backup right. generation. And that's right. a way for a specific customer or subset of customers to pay extra for reliability or for resiliency. So fine, that, that seems great to me. But when you take that all the way down at sort of logical track and you're talking about privatizing all of that planning, you know, it does feel to me like we've we've made a policy decision that I fully support that a pretty high level of reliability that to which we've all grown accustomed is a, basically a, a human right, at least within the US, within this developed economy that we've got. And so if you end up in a system that has fully privatized that and it's all um, a free market based on pricing, then you then I, I'm terrified that you're going to end up with like you know, urban areas that are lower income that have really low electric reliability that is sort of sending them backward in time because they can't afford to pay for higher reliability. So I guess my, you know, and this is, it's it's a version of the argument that gets made in lots of different places in healthcare and all these other places. Like, is there some basic level that we should say, you know, at a, at a minimum, I, I guarantee every person access to electricity. We made that decision long ago when we started electrifying the whole country and at some, you know, reasonably high level of reliability. Yeah. I mean, when you get into the equity arguments, I think it's, it is interesting to look at something, say like the, you know, analogies to housing or, you know, even to food access and, and pricing um, where again, there's not really a, a very clear role for government even to guarantee the security of supply there um, because we already see markets function well enough to, to, um, uh, to provide new supply um, for those services. And you know, I think housing, and we can all agree that housing and food um, is even a more essential thing for, for uh, human welfare than electricity is. And so, um, you know, I, I definitely appreciate like concerns that say, hey, isn't there some minimum level that government needs to guarantee? Um, yeah, I think if it's done correctly, uh, consumers will... Uh, will be able to express their willingness to pay again. And so the, the reliability, the level of reliability they would receive would be commensurate to what they're willing to pay. So if folks that are, um, have either fewer resources or frankly, aren't so bothered by having, you know, maybe their lights turned off once a summer, um, say, you know what, I'm, I'm not willing to pay for that you know, premium reliability package um, that say maybe a manufacturer is whose equipment may be damaged, um, then their electricity rates would actually be lower than if government just came in and said, "Hey, we're all gonna we're gonna determine what this reliability level is and apportion the costs um, evenly throughout everyone," which is more or less similar to what we've uh, been doing in a conventional approach. And so, what I think you'd actually see if we did this correctly is folks that would receive less reliable services, but also be paying a lot less for electric uh, on their electric bills. And so it would be commensurate. And that's kind of the idea is 
where you know where the benefits um, and the costs are, are are maximized for each individual consumer. Yeah, I'm just not willing to let that go to its logical extreme. Like I could get I could get partway there as long as we agree to some universal basic reliability or something like that. You know, some some minimum where you know even if you can't afford to pay nearly anything, you still are going to get access to to some level of reliability that isn't going to sacrifice your ability to, you know, pull yourself up in the economy. Sure. And, and I think pretty much when we, we already see this in a lot of, um, at more of the state level, that's a state policy issue primarily where they say, all right, for low income uh, folks, there's different you know, pricing programs or what have you to make sure there's a basic degree of access. So I think that, you know, the, the equity side of this will you know, politically definitely be a, a powerful force and would get you to some baseline level like that, um, where I think that you could have a huge value gain is that, and you know, it's beyond that reliability level, beyond a certain level, um, you know, at least letting folks express that, then you're going to have a, you know, a variety of reliability services differentiated uh, to what customers are willing to pay above that minimum level. Can I ask about just quickly one last thing going back to the sort of subsidy argument for renewables? I mean, I guess the other thing that we didn't talk about is I think folks who have been fighting for those subsidies for so long would probably make the case that, you know, we probably wouldn't have needed them in the first place if we had just been able to internalize the cost of carbon into the electricity sector. But it was, you know, it was a necessity because as a policy matter, we failed to price carbon, which is an externality into or greenhouse gases into into the market that then all these other sort of market distorting subsidies, as you might call them, were necessary as a kind of backdoor means to combat climate change. Um, what do you think about sort of the need now to to, I guess, internalize the cost of climate change and how would you go about doing it? Yeah, that's that's sort of the other side of the coin is, um, you know, the infant industry argument is a separate one from the environmental externality argument. And, you know, within the field of you know, environmental economics, usually things like a, a, a subsidy isn't even considered a, a market compatible instrument. They're usually extremely inefficient ways of achieving emissions reductions. Um, I'm thinking back to uh, a National Academy's report that uh, the Congressional Budget Office had cited, if I recall correctly, the uh, the avoided cost per ton of carbon from the, the PTC and ITC um, on average was uh, over $200 per ton. And so, yeah, you can see how subsidies for clean energy have a tendency to reduce pollution. Sometimes they, they actually have uh, countervailing effects. But you know, it's, it's such an expensive pathway to reduce emissions that, A, there's a lot of harm just in that, and B, the political backlash of scaling up that type of approach would probably not be sustainable. And so um, that's where you get into the issue of, of emissions pricing. Um, and of course, R Street's been a, a, a proponent of, uh, of, of a revenue-neutral uh, carbon tax. Um, and if you ask, I think, the, the broad field of, of economists... You know, they're they're definitely saying, hey, either go with a, a marketable allowances approach or emissions pricing, direct emissions pricing. Um, and I think that the, the tendency is definitely to go um, to lean towards uh, direct emissions pricing just um, on some some simplification bases alone. And it, it it sends the efficient signal to the private sector to to value that. But I do think, you know, to your to the second part of your question there is, is it really necessary going forward? 
Well, I think it's interesting to see that the areas of technological innovation going forward, next generation technologies, just happen to be uh, a lot lower in emissions. And so we also see, a, I think we'll see a lot of organic development towards um, emissions reductions, both because of as a function of technology, but also as a function of consumer demand, where we see a very sizable and growing segment of the marketplace um, uh, going out of its way, even p- paying a premium for, for low or zero emission uh, generation supply. So I want to transition to talking about what's, you know, we're, we're spending a lot on sort of hypotheticals and what we'd like to see ideally. Let's talk about what's actually happening. So last November, we elected a Republican president and, you know, had a pretty wide sweep at the congressional level of Republicans as well. So one might think that a free marketeer interested in making changes in the energy sector would be able to usher in all the all the policies that you'd want. Obviously, this administration has not uh, followed that path exactly. So we can get into specific things that are going on, but I'm interested just to get your general take on like how this administration, where this administration sits um, in terms of the kind of, I guess, energy political spectrum relative to where our street would like to see. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, So this administration has a lot of mixed influences. I'm going to say it's basically divided into two camps, and we also see this trend more broadly in the GOP, where you have two different camps. You have the more principled, conservative, you know, limited government, good governance emphasis, and then you have this, for lack of a better term, more of a, a country club <laughs> Republican view of, you know what, f- still willing to, to pick winners, but picking different winners than the left. And I think that you've, you've, especially as identity politics has really played into this, we've seen this administration, sort of this, this, this uh, di- you know, dichotomy really manifest itself a couple ways in this administration. On one hand, you have some of the, the pro-market advisors really doing a lot on the DREG front. And so you'll see a lot of things that more principled conservatives are like, all on board with, um, you know, for example, looking at uh, reducing the regulatory burden on coal plants through maybe a more efficient implementation of the new source review program at EPA, or looking at uh, how we can reduce regulatory burdens on nuclear. These are things that principled conservatives, um, which is the R Street perspective, um, are really excited about. But then you also have this other camp, and this other camp in many ways, as you know, as you as you alluded to earlier, I think the favoritism of this administration to certain industries is very, very clear. And in many ways, they're willing to entertain things that are really very leftist policy instruments, but they're just picking different winners than the contemporary American political left. And that's that gives uh, principal conservatives a, a, a huge uh, amount of heartburn. And so that's where we see something like some of the actions to consider, you know, direct subsidies for coal production, or of course, full cost recovery uh, for for coal plants and all these other things. Um, that's just reverse industrial policy, and that's a huge backtrack. And unfortunately, when you look at things like a lot of struggling coal and nuclear plants now, you're seeing the GOP very divided. And even though it's against their constituents' interests to bail out these power plants, a lot of them still have. Uh, 
a lot of affection for these particular technologies. And of course, some, some degree of political economy here suggests that there's a lot of uh, things going on behind the scenes as well. But you see the, the GOP kind of stuck in this middle ground where we have one camp that wants to pick winners and the other camp that says, no, 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 embrace markets. The transition underway in the electricity space is a natural evolution of the marketplace. And so this, this tension um, is, is, I think, kind of manifested itself in a whole variety of ways. And there's actually this tension at the Department of Energy and within the White House because you have these two very different reports that have come out. Well, one technical report from the DOE, from staff, and um, from some political appointees looking at how market forces have impacted coal and nuclear power plant retirements. And then you have this proposed rule from Rick Perry that, you know, is is asking FERC to consider a compensation mechanism for these aging coal and nuke plants with 90 days of fuel on site, but which really wasn't backed up by the technical report. So let's let's um we spent a lot of time on both of these, and I'm really curious to get your take on each of them. So first to the technical report, which I know you were involved in, and uh, I, I assume that you, you thought was a pretty good report. What was your response to that document that came out that I think a lot of people were surprised by because they assumed it was going to be a political document, and it was a pretty decent accounting of market forces at work? Yeah, I think overall it was a, a solid report. Um, definitely there were some areas of findings where I would have my nitpicks. Um, I would have liked to, to see a little stronger emphasis to show that the, the investments um, made in competitive electricity markets are, are hugely beneficial, not just the operating efficiencies, which were noted in the report. Um, but I think by and large, um, they did a good job with it. And I think that the, especially given the time frame and some degree of, of political um, pressure, but also um, I think the recommendations when you look at it, what did they say? They said, oh, address price formation. Um, you know, do, you know, approach essential reliability services to the grid um, through market-based instruments. Um, and then go after the resiliency uh, at, in, in a manner that is consistent with where the industry is at on, a, on that perspective. And that's saying that we haven't fully advanced the concept of resiliency. So have NERC, the RTOs, and and uh, industry stakeholders start to conceptualize it, develop metrics for it, etc. Um, that's a very reasonable approach, and that's consistent with good market principles. Um, and those were things that that we um, had had encouraged uh, DOE to consider. And of course, they looked at uh, you know the drivers of of uh, coal and, and nuclear retirement. Said, uh, oh yeah, it's uh, it's heavily driven by natural gas. Um, you, you know, new entry of gas, both. Uh, you know, driven by cheap uh, fuel prices, but also by advances in combined cycle technology, and then secondarily by uh, softening demand, and then these you know these other drivers, especially a lot of uh, preferential policies, have played a role, but they've mostly been at the periphery. So I think that they characterize that correctly, and I think uh, when when you get it into looking at the the genesis of the NOPER, it was very clear that the thinking of technical staff did not translate into the political proposal, which is political in every sense of the word. I get the sense that this NOPER was actually being crafted before the technical report and that when it 
came out when the technical report came out and didn't match the justification for the noper that there was a lot of hand wringing within the tight circle of Rick Perry because this is, has been part of a year long plan to specifically help save the coal industry. Your response to that take? I think over the last week, we've seen a lot more reporting coming out showing, for example, the role of, um, you know, the, the Robert Murray and Murray uh, Energy having a role specifically on the Trump administration's plan to help save coal. And this NOPER seems to be kind of a part of that. And the technical report, um, because it didn't it didn't uh, ju- justify this noper. There seemed to be a little bit of anger about that internally. Um, I don't know how much you want to speculate, but uh, given conversations that I've had, there there was definitely a mismatch between those two priorities. Yeah, a mismatch is is an understatement. I think <laughs> there it's it, I th- uh, it's really upsetting. I mean, it's it's hard to, and I'm I'm really avoiding any any hyperbole here. I think. You know, when you, for example, look at the, the public comments that, that Allison Silverstein made, and she was the technical lead on the report, um, right? She thinks this thing is <laughs> atrocious. Um, and it, it, it totally contradicts the, the right type of approach. It totally contradicts the evidence that's available out there. Um, I mean, it's amazing just even picking apart a few of the basic arguments here, you know, things like, Oh, you need 90 days of on-site fuel supply. Where, uh, you know, what's the type of event they bring up? Oh, they bring up the the polar vortex, where actually the issue was multi-day power supplies. Not, you know, we're talking like three days, five days, maybe a week in some cases. Um, where, you know, generators were operating in more conservative fashions to conserve fuel or other resources. Um, you weren't talking 90 days. And then plus, if you want to look at the polar vortex, you know, the, the biggest issue, for example, in PJM, which had the most issues, the biggest issue were mechanical malfunctions. And the poster child for that were actually coal plants. So, you know, one thing, you're, you're not even, it's not even a very honest approach um, to, to doing this correctly. So it's entirely politically motivated. Um, I, I, I really appreciate the concern with reliability and resiliency as we go forward and define that. But this is this violates the principles of how you do it, and when you look at things like um, you know look at NERC's reports recently, um, you know grid reliability, most metrics have been improving in recent years. Um, you look at all the reforms that FERC made um, under the Obama administration, um, which unfortunately is part of the reason that this administration is not trustworthy of the information that uh, came out during that era and what reforms were made. Um, and I think, if anything, you look at what PJM and New England responded to and their capacity market reforms, if anything, they're biased uh, towards more of these so-called uh, baseload resource compensation. And so whether you look there or you look in Texas, what's happening in Texas, um, you know, where you have the most, if you will, closest to free market approach, hey, you just had a bunch of coal retirements. And it's, it's market forces that are driving it out and reliability metrics are, are looking robust. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really disappointing, and I think it does a disservice to the people um, that contributed to that report, both in-house in at DOE and out-of-house. Um, and I just hope that going forward, this doesn't set a precedent for FERC um, or for the parties to just keep battling over picking winners. Uh, we need to build that bridge 
to the future of where, you know, in the 2020s, we really do have a system where technologies are just competing on their merits. Yeah. uh, Well, I appreciate the candor. And, you know, I I will be even more explicit in this. I think it's very important for us to differentiate the technical report from this notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, They are very different products. And I think it's pretty clear that that rule in some form had been in the works before this technical report. And the technical report was very well done. There, I know that there, there has been some criticism of it still, um, you know, whether or not political appointees were pushing the impact of coming regulations on retirements. There are obviously some internal quibbles about the role of regulation in speeding up retirement. But, um, you know, despite some of those uh, differences, the technical report, I think we can all agree, was a very good product. And it's very important for us to differentiate it from this rule that Perry put out there. Absolutely. And I think I think what'll be interesting to see is to what extent does FERC redirect and say, we're going to go more in the direction of the of the uh, where the evidence is supported something like the outline that was in the DOE technical report uh, as we kind of shift this reliability and resiliency push in a direction that is consistent with market principles. So I guess now that we're, we've sort of the administration has shown its true colors uh, at least as not being a consistently principled conservative free market viewpoint on energy. And we know that it has this overarching desire to save coal at least um, and possibly nuclear as well. What do you, you know, what do you do as in terms of trying to influence the administration, get them to change course, you know, think a little bit harder about these types of principles? Is there a way that you think you can influence them and and convince one of these camps to win out over the other? Or is it just a matter of kind of battening down the hatches? Yeah, I, I think there is one huge variable in all of this, and it's mostly political. Um, and that's the consumer groups. So, for example, look at how heavy industry has responded to this NOPR. Um, you know, we had, uh, for, for example, there's been a few hearings on the, on the Hill um, related to power in the, in the House Energy and Commerce side. And you had uh, a group that represents uh, manufacturers get in there and say, hey, what this proposal actually means is that DOE thinks manufacturing jobs are not as important. And... If you think about the angle of this administration, boom, it should speak exactly to their concerns, right? This was the promise to, to re- revitalize the, the industrial might of, of the United States. Um, how do you do that with escalating energy prices and restricting uh, the choice of, of those consumers? And so consumer groups, um, and this, of course, isn't just heavy industry. This is AARP and a whole bunch of others. Um, they're the ones, it's going to be consumers that get hurt by this. And that's going to be the, by far the most powerful political voice to turn this around, both with this administration, but also with, um, with individual members in state houses uh, and in Congress. It's going to take the consumer groups to speak up and say, you know what, markets are what's driving down costs for us. Let them work. Um, do not pick winners. And, and I think that's, that's going to be your, your X factor. And, and if we can organize those type of groups um, I think we have a, a very strong counteroffensive that can go on the on the table here, and I think this administration, um, you know, would be willing to shift directions in in some areas at least um, to to advance that front. 
Well, you and your team are doing some great work over there at R Street. And I highly recommend folks go check out the papers and um, pieces of analysis and op-eds that you and your team have written at uh, rstreet.org. One last question. I want to hop backward and talk just briefly about taxes since we are now looking at a tax reform package in the House and Senate and both treat energy tax reform very differently. You um, have looked at what tax reform for energy should look like in an ideal world. Obviously, the House version of the bill really mostly touches renewable energy and electric vehicle tax credits, um, but doesn't do the real hard and heavy lifting of uh, revisiting, you know, the, the very opa- opaque tax structure for all forms of energy. What kind of tax reform do you think is fair? And how do you do the hard work of, you know, looking at bond schemes and permanent tax credits and, you know, all sorts of other programs that tax advantage certain industries that uh, may not as be as easy to identify as a technology-specific credit like a production tax credit or investment tax credit. Yeah, I think there's a few few principles here sort of from like the, the theoretical side of it. And then I think there's the political calculation <laughs> that you have to go through uh, and those constraints as well. And so starting off with the, the idealized side, um, so, yeah, first off, we would, we would definitely not like to see, um, you know, f- poor forms of, of, of cost recovery or, you know, indirect or even direct subsidies built in through the tax code. So tax credits do not make the cut um, in, our, in our mind in any way, shape or form. Um, but then you see some interesting areas also where you have tax preferences. So things like, for example, fossil fuels most of their tax preferences are tied back to forms of capital cost recovery, which is very different. And so if we're going to talk about, um, you know, any principle of, of, of tax reform usually focuses on, you know, accelerating depreciation or getting us more in the direction generally of, of taxing companies on their net income. And in many areas of the fossil code, we're actually closer to that, which has some attributes we like. But what's problematic is when all of a sudden you you provide those tax preferences, even if they are structurally more attractive, to a subset of the energy sector. And that is going to distort relationships uh, you know, between industries in the, in the energy sector. Um, so you, one is definitely having more uniform treatment of uh, tax preferences that are actually structurally sound. So moving in that direction and definitely more towards expensing is and, and accelerated depreciation is something... Uh, that we like to see, but done again more and more uniform basis. But then I kind of alluded to there's political constraints here, of course. Um, a couple things are that one, if we're always going to have maybe some degree of interest resurfacing for tax credits for infant industry, for example, then let's make that less technology specific and focus it more on qualifying attributes of a certain technology class. That way we're not getting, at, we're, we're less prescriptive, but also secondarily, a big piece would be defining what economies of scale are, predetermining to say, hey, this is the level at which we're going to ratchet down or totally phase out this tax credit. Um, that's the defined level of when we've hit economies of scale and this technology has grown up. And so um, there have been some tax credits that have done that before. So making sure we predetermine that. And that can help avoid that so-called rent maintenance behavior uh, that I was talking about earlier. 
and uh, and that at least gets us more in the direction of technology neutrality and cutting out a lot of the um, uh, uh, opportunities for long-term precedent setting um, of, of, of picking winners. Again, that was Devin Hartman. He is a uh, senior fellow at the R Street Institute. So, Shio, what did you uh, think about that interview with Devin? I really liked it, not just because we got in the weeds once again, but because it was you know, a fairly honest take on the politics guiding this stuff as well. Um, you know, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's not a lot of alignment among many uh, mainstream conservative groups who, you know, really publicly still disparage renewables and don't want to do anything about climate change. Yeah, you know, I thought I thought it was a really good conversation. I think there's clearly some areas in which I found myself sort of nodding along as he was saying things. And then every time there'd be some point where I would kind of stop. And I would say, all right, this is as far as I'm willing to go. And and he's, I think, as he he kept referring to principled conservatives, I think he really is one. Um, he believes in free market principles and will take them to to some end that is at least further along that road than I would be comfortable with. But there there's a space there where I think we we can be aligned, and it it largely revolves around enabling new technologies and different kinds of technologies that have value to these markets to play in the markets um, and to allow sort of prices to support their participation. So there is, there's something there. Um, but I think it's going to take us some time, especially because we're still adjusting to the new political landscape in the wake of the elections last year to figure out exactly how this coalition can be effective given the administration that we've got right now and whether that's it's you know it's a sort of temporary oppositional force to that administration or whether it is going to be a long-term coalition that can accomplish things together well i wouldn't underestimate this realignment it's a um you know one small piece of this massive realignment in the body politic right now but uh i think it it speaks for something you know there's something going on here that um to me seems lasting Anyway, realign yourselves with this podcast. If you want to give us a five-star review, if you like us, of course, it goes a long way toward helping uh, bump us up in iTunes and help us find new listeners. Give us a uh, review, too. We'd love to hear from you. You can always send us show ideas through podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catch us on Twitter as well. And the show is on Twitter now at Interchange Show. And we thank all of you, of course. We're super grateful for everyone who listens to this show. And if you're grateful for the work that we put into this, you know, pass a link on to your friends and colleagues. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Energy Conversations from Green Tech Media.